Well, good morning, church. How's everybody doing this morning? Man, it's been a minute since I've preached up here, and these lights are bright. I'm usually back there in the shadows, so this is kind of bright for me. Um, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Marty. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the student ministry pastor here at Redemption Church, and um, uh, for those of you who don't know that we have a youth group, we do. It's called Impact Youth Group. We, we, we meet every Monday from 6.30 to 8.30 here at the church. And so this is my shameless plug. We only have a few weeks left for the school year. And yet, if you have a student that wants to at least check it out for this year, 7th through 12th grade, it could be your kid. It could be a niece or a nephew. It could be a grandchild. Uh, it could be the kid down the street that throws rocks at your house. If you want to just pick him up one day and bring him to church, you are more than welcome to do that. Um, I told you I would bring it up again. The Bolowitz kids, man, they, they, of everything I preached on Friday night, that's what they remembered. They said, you will pick kids up and throw them at the church. So if you take away anything from my message this morning, remember that. Okay, um, but 6.30 to 8.30, the last uh, youth event is going to be June 5th for the school year. We're also going to be doing a Bible study throughout the summer months, so uh, parents who are in the WhatsApp group, just be looking for some details about that. Um, but I'm really excited about June 5th because we're actually going to be having dinner with the CIA ministry here at Redemption and just getting to hear some uh, testimonies and have some time of fellowship with them, which I'm really excited about. So uh, June 5th will be the last date for that. Uh, and then the only other announcement I have for this morning is that the craft fair is this Saturday. So if you've been hearing announcements about that or seeing the table out in the fellowship area, uh, we still need some volunteers for that weekend. So if you have any interest in that, you can go to the table. You could talk to uh, Marcy Leo. You could talk to one of the pastors here. Just let us know, or you can sign up at that table. And then also, if you were looking to uh, have items that you wanted to sell there, you can also go to that table and indicate uh, that you're interested in that as well. So that's this Saturday. Uh, marker calendars for that event. Uh, other than that, I am going to continue in 1 John. Uh, we're in 1 John chapter 2 this morning. I'm going to read a very short passage of scripture for us, and then I'll pray, and then we'll go right into the message. So John, 1 John chapter 2, verse 12 says this, I am writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I am writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have conquered the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And I have written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have conquered the evil one. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for... This morning, God, what a wonderful opportunity it was to hear your people sing praises to your name. Thank you for the worship team, and I know the, the time and effort that goes into leading the congregation, so thank you for them. I thank you for the people of Redemption Church, whether it's our every week members or if it's uh, new people this morning. I just thank you for bringing uh, this congregation to sit under your word this morning. I pray that we would be attentive to your word, uh, but that we would not just be hearers of your word, but doers of it as well. Help us to apply this message to our life, impact, impact this congregation through the power of your Holy Spirit. I pray that you would speak through me for uh, the glory, honor, and praise to your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, I would say that after a somewhat challenging opening to this letter, I don't know, that's just kind of how I've 
uh, been feeling about 1 John so far. I, I think it was Pastor Fred who said last week or the week before, you know, John doesn't leave very much room for any gray area. He's a very black and white kind of uh, writer, and it seems like he throws some pretty extreme uh, I guess, options out there for you to live by. It's not really options, but these commands, these, these things that he's been spelling out in the beginning part of his letter, he leaves really no uh, room for any gray area. They're truths that needed to be stated for this congregation to hear, for us to hear. Uh, and this is where we've seen a, a boldness and a directness from John in a very loving way. Don't get me wrong. I think that there's a very endearing tone behind this letter, especially as we come to this seemingly out of place part of this letter. I don't know about you, but if you even look in your Bible, it kind of stands out, uh, verses 12 through 14, as almost poetic in a sense. He's writing a letter to a church and, and, and to a group of believers, and he's saying some very black and white things, and then all of a sudden he stops, and even the indentation in the structure of our Bibles that we have now seems to indicate that it's kind of a, he's going in a different direction here for a minute, for a couple of verses. And it's almost how we have to say to ourselves, or at least I had to say to myself, okay, so John is clearly not callous towards this church. There is a tone of endearment to them because he's spelling it out, I think, right here. He's not in confrontation mode at this point. He's not addressing any specific issue within the church or within the Christian life as a whole. He's kind of paused from that. And it's here where I believe he does that for one specific reason. There may be multiple, and I think that there's been pastors and, and, and different people who have preached this text with different applications. But I, I, from what I see in this letter is that John is pausing here for one reason, and that is to encourage the people he's writing to. Because he's encouraged them how, should I say? Well, with the reality of their current state as believers. You see, when you are, as a believer, as a Christian, you are, and John would call them, children of God or children of the light. John does not mean in any way to give his readers this impression that he thinks that they are the ones in darkness or that he in any way doubts the authenticity of the people he's writing to, their faith in Christ. Now, no, there are, we know that there are those who were clearly walking in darkness. He's warning against that uh, prior to this passage. This is something we'll actually learn more about later on in this chapter. There are false teachers that were pushing uh, false doctrines within the church. There were people denying Christ. There were people out and out leaving the church, leaving the faith. These are whom he regards as antichrists. They, he's not referring to the loyal members of the church, and we'll, we'll learn about that in a couple of weeks. That's um, an interesting passage. So. But after a heavier start to this letter, and I'll be honest, last week for me was heavy. I, I, don't, I was talking to Michael McKee about it uh, on Friday night when Fred preached last week. Uh, and some of the passages he was reading, like it, I found myself kind of holding my breath at times. Like I had to remind myself to breathe because some of the passages were heavy. Like when I, anytime I read Matthew chapter seven, where there's people who are appealing to God at the end of their life and saying, Lord, Lord, did we not do all of these things in your name? And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. Like I have to remind myself to like, because it's a heavy passage. It's, hard, it's a hard pill to swallow. 
And so after what seems to be, at least in my opinion, a little bit of a heavier topic, he seems to completely digress from that message, the the warnings or the commands that he has to remind them of something. Now, John has already mentioned twice in this letter the reasons for his writing. In chapter 1 of verse 4, it says he has written to them so that their joy may be complete. And then in verse 1 of this chapter, he says, My little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But having gotten well into his message addressing this idea of holiness and love for fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, John pauses to ensure that he has their attention. You'll notice that these statements are directed towards uh, some groups of individuals, individual uh, groups that he, he labels as children, young men, and fathers. These are all believers that he's addressing here just in various stages of spiritual growth. We'll kind of talk about not to take those terms literally. He's not only talking to men or, or young children, young men, and, and older men as fathers. These are all believers just in various stages of spiritual growth, and we'll, we'll, we'll see that in a couple of minutes. But these, these statements are what will be to for lack of a better term, inspire them, motivate them to persevere and to pursue the holy standard that he has set up until this point to walk in the light. There is clearly more that will be addressed in this letter. We are not at the conclusion. We're still very much in the beginning of this letter. But before he continues on, it's almost as if we have this moment where he says, okay, guys, girls, like everybody, look at me for a second. No, like make eye contact with me. Look at me. I'm writing to you these things because. And then he reassures them about some things about their current state as believers. He reminds them about who they are in Christ. And not in some self-boasting, be all that you can be type of way. That's not what this is. No, these are simple yet profound gospel-centered reminders that John is offering to them before he continues on in this letter. Because next week, he's going right back into it. Do not love the world, neither the things that are in the world. But before I get to some more heavier topics, some more black and white topics, hey, I just wanna, I wanna reassure you about a couple of things. And the repetition of this passage, at surface glance, it might be confusing. Like, why did he write the... He addresses three groups twice, kind of saying the same thing to them multiple times. Uh, Many biblical scholars, I I did a little bit of research on this, they understand this repetition in this way, and I kind of like the explanation of this. It's almost as if John writes, and then he pauses, and then he confirms what he has written. So I write to you these things because... And then he pauses, then he says, now I've written to you because, and I want to confirm the thing that I just wrote. See, the repetition of these phrases, it's rhetorical. It's, it's functioning as a call to a renewed focus. See, if I say something to you once that's endearing or motivating or challenging, right? You take notice of that. But if I say, hey, what I just said, I meant that. And I reassure you and I reaffirm that statement. You're going to perk up. You're going to take notice of what it is that I'm saying. So, This to me is a clear indication that his message is sure. There is no doubt in his mind about these statements he's making about these believers. This is his his testimony. This is his full and final testimony about these believers. I know who you are, so let me remind you. So as we work through these statements from uh, 1 John, I I want us to see the gospel-driven encouragement, which no doubt offers 
And, it, and it, it, it offers and it roots them or it results in what I've titled the sermon, gospel confidence. See, we use the term confidence a lot and that could mean uh, so many different things in today's culture. You can have confidence in yourself. You could have confidence in another human being and that's fine. Um, but what I wanna remind us is, is that we as Christians, we can have confidence in Christ, I think we're called to do that. It's not boasting of anything of yourselves, but it's relying fully on Christ, especially in the face of doubt, which is what this church would have been experiencing uh, uh, most likely. Again, as we'll see later on in this chapter with the rise of, of antichrists who were denying the faith and leaving, and there was probably some division in and amongst the church. And so uh, in the face of doubt, we can have gospel confidence even today. And so as I, answer, uh, as I work through three points of the sermon this morning, I want to answer, keep in mind three questions that I'm going to be kind of addressing with each sermon point. And those three questions, they're, they're not anything on your handout, but just be thinking about these questions as I go through the sermon. One, why can the church be confident? Why can Christians be confident? What or who is, their con is the source of their confidence? And then what is the result of that confidence? Those are the three questions that I kind of want to address here as I work through three points to the sermon. So if you are taking notes, uh, we're going to look at the first point together this morning, which is this. Gospel confidence comes from the fact that we are forgiven. Gospel confidence comes from the fact that we are forgiven. Now, this is the present reality of every single believer that cannot be overlooked. Especially to those here this morning who may categorize themselves or see themselves as a newer Christian, baby Christians, whatever you wanna say, someone who's recently given their life to Christ, you've been saved, you've been born again. Uh, if that's you this morning, maybe with, even within the past couple of years, like, yeah, I've kind of given my life to Christ and I've been slowly working at this thing called the Christian life. I think John is specifically, at least in verse 12, addressing that category of people. John reminds us that by being born of God, we become children of God. This is a foundational truth in the gospel. And the basis of this truth, of course, is none other than the person and work of Jesus Christ. So notice in verse 12, what John says, he says, I am writing to you little children. And that's not a, that's not a condescending term. The translation of that, uh, of course, we, we, it, like if I were to uh, address grown men and women in this room who are clearly older than me as little children. That sounds kind of insulting. He's using this in an endearing way. This is a fatherly tone that he's using. It's almost like a pastoral assertion over them as ones that I care for, ones that are under my care. So I'm writing to you, little children, since your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Whose name? Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, not only the person but also Jesus, which his name literally means God, is salvation. Jesus is not just who he is as a person. It's also what he's done for you. I love the fact that there's meaning behind his name. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, I'll prove it to you. It says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. See, Jesus is his name, but it's not just his name alone. Like, 
I can't, the name of Marty can't save you. The name of Garrett or Dylan can't save you. The name, there's more than just the name Jesus for this man that came and lived on earth 2,000 years ago. It's also the meaning behind his name, which is God is salvation, him offering himself to us for us to be saved. And how are we saved? Romans 10, 13, very famous passage of scripture. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's the name of Christ, but what is the work? I've kind of spelled it out as two different things here. Well, I think Hebrews chapter 10, verses 14 through 18 kind of explain the work of Christ. There's other passages that do, but I love the way that it's described in Hebrews 10. It says this, for by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. That's us, believers. If you're here and you are in Christ, that's who that's referring to. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. For after he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after those days, the Lord says, I will put my laws on their hearts, write them on their minds, and I will never again remember their sins and their lawless acts. And then he says this in verse 18, now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. See, Jesus was the final offering for sin, for your sin and for my sin. And it's the only offering that was sufficient enough to pay the penalty and to be the atonement for our sin. So if that is you today, if you sit here and you say, that's me, I claim to be a Christian and I I claim forgiveness in Christ, I'm here to remind you that where there is forgiveness. There is no longer a need for an offering for your sin. You may affirm that. See, if you are in Christ, you are saved. I'll say things like you are no longer a slave to sin, but the Bible says we're now slaves to righteousness. The debt is paid. The atoning sacrifice was enough. It is finished, Jesus said on the cross. Not it is finished, plus, you know, 2,000 years later, the people sitting at Redemption Church in Lower Burl, they have to believe in me, plus do X, Y, and Z on their own part. No, when he said it is finished, he meant it is accomplished. It is done. It is paid for. The work has been done for you. Now, this does not make you perfect when you are in Christ. We still battle our flesh every day as we stumble through this life, okay? And this certainly is not saying that this is anything that you have earned. This is the grace of God in your life. That's why it's called grace. It's called unmerited favor. You did not earn it. Pastor and author Dan Ortland, uh, he has a book titled Gentle and Lowly, and then the subtitle is The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. It's a great book. Um, he says this, he says, quote, it's the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity, that we are declared right with God, not once we get our act together, but once we collapse into the honest acknowledgement that we never will. See, you can't get your act together and then come to God and say, see, I'm right before you now. Our relationship is mended. No, you collapse into the fact, into the arms of Christ literally and say, Jesus, I'm not enough, but you are. You are sufficient. Your sacrifice and your uh, offering was enough. And yet for many of us, even though we affirm everything that I just said, and I think that's great. We should be affirming these statements 
Yet for many of us, even though we are in Christ and our sins have been forgiven on account of the name of Jesus Christ, we live our lives as if we aren't really forgiven. I mean, think about it. Think about human nature, even within the church. What do we do? We self-advocate in countless areas of our lives. When we mess up, we justify and excuse our behavior. When we do sin, we harp on it. Maybe refuse to forgive ourselves for a certain situation. Maybe we heap shame and guilt on ourselves or on others for the things that they've done. I'm talking about believers now. I'm talking about those who are in Christ. We do these things. You see, sin not only impacts the actions that we take in this life, but sin also impacts our response to those actions. When we do screw up, sin, what it does is it, and and this is the work of the enemy as well, but it's also just the work of our fallen flesh. We think that we somehow now have to do something to either make up for that sin or we just live in that sin and shoulder that burden as if it's mine to carry. And Jesus, that's, I don't wanna use this terminology, but it's kind of like a slap in the face to the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, who you claim to believe in. Because he said, I've taken that sin from you and it's paid for. And no one wants to live this way. So don't hear me like saying that this is like an enjoyable thing. No one wants to live this way, but it's, it's our flesh. It's what we do. It's, it's, it's the result of sin in our lives. But what if we didn't have to do that? What if we truly lived as if this statement is true in our lives, that we are forgiven because of the name of Jesus Christ, period. That's it. We are forgiven, That same author that I just quoted, Dan Ortland, he goes on to say in that book, as long as you fix your attention on your sin, you will fail to see how you can be safe. I've been there. But as long as you look to this high priest, Jesus, you will fail to see how you can be in any danger. See, looking inside ourselves, we can anticipate only harshness from heaven. God's gonna get me because you don't know what I've done. But he goes on to say, he says, but looking out to Christ, we can anticipate only gentleness because Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. I'll address this a little bit later under the third point, but I hope you get the idea that in Christ, we have a savior, we have an advocate in heaven whose name and work are the only reasons that we can stand forgiven. And so if that's the only way that we can stand forgiven, when you mess up, go to him. Go to him. I mean, it's almost like, I don't know if you can imagine this, but uh, first off, I'm gonna ask, does anybody here work out like with weighted backpacks or weighted vests? Because if you do, you can get out. (laughs) I have a buddy who, uh, he's crazy transformation story of his life. Just someone who's completely turned their life around health-wise. And he like runs marathons and, and stuff and does like shotgun squats. If you don't know what that is, where you go down on one leg and your other leg, I can't even do it, so I'm not even think about what you think that means. But he does it with weighted vests on at like 4 a.m. I'm like, there's something wrong, broken in your mind, okay? But imagine having this weighted vest on just for your day-to-day life. And imagine that that weighted vest is the weight of your sin. I mean, eventually you kind of get used to it, but it's just going throughout your day-to-day life. You're just, it, it, you just have this heaviness about you and you're shouldering these, and bur- these burdens and these sins. And then one day... 
I don't know, after however many years for me, 14 years of my life of having this weighted vest on, Jesus Christ barges into your life, saves your soul, praise the Lord, and he takes that weighted vest from you and says, I've carried that for you. And then you you experience this moment of like the lifting and the forgiveness of your sin and this lifting of the burden. And I I mean, if you've been there, the moment you were saved, you understand uh, this idea, the reality of your sins being lifted from you. But then, I don't know, a couple months go by, a couple years go by, and you start to, you know, you stumble in your flesh. Again, we're not perfect once we're in Christ. And every single time, just imagine, every single time you sin, you go and reach for that vest again, and try to fight Jesus for it to put it back on yourself. I know that sounds like a ridiculous example, but that's what we do when we try to shoulder the shame and heap shame and guilt upon ourselves when we mess up and are in Christ because those sins have already been paid for. Confess them, but don't hold on or, or, or bear that sin. Uh, the Bible commands us not only to confess our sins to, to God and, and to Christ and ask for forgiveness, but in James, he encourages us to confess our sins one to another. There's an encouragement about uh, confessing sin and understanding that we truly are forgiven. And I wanna just, I just wanna remind you under this first point this morning that you can be confident that the blood of Jesus Christ was and is enough to cover a multitude of sin. The Bible says your sins have been cast as far as the East is from the West. His atoning sacrifice is and was sufficient and in him you are forgiven. And there is so much freedom in this. So gospel confidence comes from the fact that we are forgiven. Point number two, gospel confidence doesn't just come from the fact that we're forgiven, but it comes from the fact that we know God the eternal heavenly father. Gospel confidence comes from the fact that we know God, the eternal heavenly father. John says twice in both verses 13 and 14, he says the exact same phrase. He says, and I've kind of summarized it up here rather than writing the same thing twice. I am writing and have written to you fathers because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. See, the term fathers here, again, is not to be taken literally. You could imagine somebody who is uh, spiritually mature in their faith, someone who has been in the game for quite some time, but not just been a Christian for quite some time, but has been a Christian and has grown deeper and deeper in their walk with Christ. I mean, everybody in this room probably knows somebody who they would consider like their role model of, I wanna be like that person as a Christian. I wanna have a relationship with God like this person has a relationship with God. Everybody in here probably has someone in their mind's eye. And if you can't think of someone in this life, I think of someone like a Paul, right? If Paul were living on this earth right now, his relationship with God was just off the charts. Unbelievable fellowship knowing his God and, and his, his, his spirituality, his spiritual walk in, in the faith was so mature. And the reality of these individuals, their, their, their rebirth, their, uh, their salvation moment, uh, the, the receiving of the forgiveness of their sins, as well as this fellowship that we get to enjoy for this category of people, these fathers, this was an experience of a long time ago. This is something that happened a while back. These groups of individual, or this group of individuals that John addressed here, they've progressed into such a deep communion with God. 
And we see that both times John uses identical phrasing. He says, you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. Now, the verb there, to know, is the same one used right before this statement when John speaks to the children. Again, there's that same term. You could think of this as younger Christians, newer Christians, people who have just come to faith. He uses the same term He says when he speaks to the, the children who have come to know, but then he doesn't say the one who is from the beginning. He says the father. So we see here then that the source of confidence for all Christians, mature and immature, old and new, is the reality that they have come to know God, we'll unpack this word to know in a minute, but understand that these fathers, their knowledge of God has ripened over the years. Like they are just, they're on a different level, spiritually speaking, when it comes to newer believers and and these fathers. Now notice the, the difference in terminology. The children know him, know God as father. I mean, I don't know, I, I can't, I can't, speak to your experience, but these are no doubt some of my earliest experiences as a believer. As a newborn Christian, as we're born again by faith, we rejoice, no doubt, in the forgiveness of our sins through Christ. Absolutely, that's one of the, the, the first things that we celebrate as someone comes to Christ as they've been forgiven. But not only that, I mean, what that does is that ushers us into then a fellowship with our heavenly Father, and I, had, I remember vividly having this, this view of God as my heavenly father, as my, as, as, as my father in heaven. When I first came to, to Christ, I knew my sins were forgiven and God was now seen differently than just this, this holy God way out there that wants nothing to do with me versus this God, this fatherly figure that wants to have a relationship with me. And what's interesting is, The Bible answers the question how that happens. And I don't think these verses will be on the screen, but in Romans chapter eight, verses 15 and 16, and in Galatians four, six, Paul tells us that the reason you have those experiences is because the Holy Spirit within us makes us aware of our newfound relationship to God when you are in Christ, which causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. We call out to God the same way that Christ himself called out to God because the Holy Spirit testifies to us that we are no longer slaves to sin, but sons and daughters of this eternal God. The Holy Spirit testifies to each and every one of you sitting here right now, reminding you that you are a child of God. But then the mature in Christ, however, they now have a relationship with God that has grown over the years, so much so that that John reminds them that they have come to not only know God, not just as Father, they have not forgotten that, they've not graduated from that, He is still their Heavenly Father, but they also know Him a little deeper now as the one who is from the beginning. See, God is no longer just their heavenly father. And I'm not saying just as if that's like the lowest form that you can understand God, but he's not just their father now. He is, he is the, they understand him now as the immutable, constant, eternal God who does not change, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that comes with experience. 
That comes through going through the ebbs and flows of life, the highs and lows of life, where they realize everything around me changes or comes and goes or continues to live or dies, but God is the only one who has remained faithful to me in my life. These are the individuals who understand that as time moves forward and death edges closer and closer, no matter what life's bring them, they can find refuge in him who from everlasting to everlasting is God. And it's interesting too, because there is a prayer of Moses in Psalm chapter 90 and in verses one, of two, one and two of that prayer, these are the types of individuals who can confidently pray these prayers. Where in Psalm 90, verses one and two, it says this, Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. This is gospel-centered confidence. Knowing God, our Father. Knowing the one who is from the beginning. And how can this be? Okay, John's writing to people 2,000 years ago, okay? What about us? In 21st century American Christianity who's sitting in Lowerboro uh, in Redemption Church this morning, how is this applicable? How can this be for us that we can know God that not, as, not only as Father, but also the one who is from the beginning? Jesus, I think, makes it pretty clear in John chapter 14, verses six through 11. John chapter 14, verse six, very famous passage of scripture where Jesus is responding to Thomas's question of, Jesus, you say you're going away and you're going to the Father and we know the way to the Father. How can we know the way? And this is where we pick up. Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We love quoting that passage of scripture because what a reminder that Jesus is the one and only way to eternal life with the Father. But look at verse seven. He says, if you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us, show us the Father and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time and you do not know me? See, Philip's question was about show us the father. Jesus says, you've been with me the whole time. Therefore, you've been with the father the whole time. The one who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me. So my answer to this question of how can we know God in 21st century Christianity? If you know Jesus, you know the Father. That's what Jesus says about himself. If you know Jesus, you know the one who is from the beginning. You know the eternal God of the universe. And if you haven't picked up on this yet, this know, the word that is being used here, this verb that John is referring to, this isn't just head knowledge. Like, oh, I know God. I know who he is. I know Jesus. I know who he is factually. No, Jesus Christ made the way to truly know God and to have a relationship with him because of his work on the cross. See, through his death, burial, and resurrection, do you remember uh, when Jesus gave up the ghost on the cross, the earth shook and the veil was torn. That was representative of the fact that we no longer need any sacrifices or any advocate between us and the Father. We now can enter the Holy of Holies and have direct access to God through the work of Jesus Christ. This is why, and we've talked about this at youth group, why? 
why at the end of prayers, we're not just tagging on in, in Jesus' name, amen, just because it sounds catchy and it's an easy way to close out prayer. No, we pray in the name of Jesus because it's the only way that we have access to communication with the eternal God. So you can know God through Christ intimately and personally. Now, some of you may not like this example because of the current political state we're in, and that's fine. Try to think of a more wholesome example, but this is all I could come up with, okay? So bear with me. But imagine you're at the White House, okay? You're outside the White House. You're not in it yet. You're trying to get in. You walk up to the gate. I have no idea how this works, but imagine like Secret Service agents are at the gate, and you walk up to them, and you're like, hey, I want to see the president because I know him. And they're like, beat it, kid. You know what I mean? Like, I, I don't... What do you mean you know him? I know him. And you start listing facts about him. See, I know this about him and I know that about him. Now, some of your facts may not be something they want to hear, but either way, currently, but again, picture a wholesome example in your mind, okay? But I want to see the president because I know him and you only know him through head knowledge. But then imagine that same scenario as they're kicking you out or or telling you to scram. (laughs) This example gets even worse now. His son comes out, okay? I know, you have to think of this in a wholesome way, okay? But his son comes out and says, hey, hey, no, he's with me. And he puts his arm around you and he, that's the way that you can get, okay, so just forget I said anything about that, okay? All right. It's the son who gets you access. You don't just get to see the president because you know things about him. But if you have a relationship with his son, no doubt then there's going to be moments where absolutely you can come in and and get to know the president. So same thing with God. You can't just request to be in relationship with God because you know things about him or you think you've earned it or anything. No, the only way you have access to God the Father, the eternal God, the one who created the universe, it's the son who brings you into that relationship which is unbelievable, by the way. And if you, you don't know this or not, but in John's gospel, in chapter one, verse one and two, uh, Jesus not only brings you into the relationship with the one who is from the beginning, he brings you into the relationship with the one who is from the beginning because he was also there. He is the one who was from the beginning. John one, verses one and two, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Jesus was there too. And so it's not facts that make you know God. It's faith in Jesus Christ. Gospel confidence comes from, the fact, comes from knowing God the Father, the one who is from the beginning. Okay, gospel confidence, point number three. Gospel confidence comes from the fact that we are victorious in the faith. This is where we'll conclude. Gospel confidence comes from the fact that we are victorious in the faith. So in this moment, This is to those who are actively engaged in the battle with false teachers that have risen up in the church. To those who are engaged in the conflict. To those who are zealous in their faith and have no problem going toe-to-toe with Satan. This one's for you, because John says to these young men twice. This is verse, uh, second part of verse 13 and the third part of verse 14. He says, I'm writing to you young men because you have conquered the evil one. And I've written to you young men because you are strong. God's word remains in you and you have conquered the evil one. So in between children and fathers are these 
young men. Again, another way of put, don't, don't take this literally. In, uh, you could say this, in between new believers and the mature in Christ is this group of individuals. They're growing in the faith. They're not all the way like at the end where they're just like living in eternity in their mind and they're also not newer Christians. These are the ones that are kind of the in-between, right? Full of love and zeal for the things of God. And by the way, pause there. Let me just say, this is not, uh, this is not to say that those other two groups, the fathers and the children are off the hook by any means when it comes to engaging in the mission of the church, okay? It's not like the fathers are like, well, it's the younger in the faith's job to do this and, the, and the, the new in the faith are like, well, that's their job to, no, we're all engaged in the mission of the church. But John seems to be addressing these young men, these growing believers as the one who are busily involved in the battle of Christian living. And what I love about this group that he addresses is this. What it, it does for me is it serves as a good reminder that the Christian life is not just about enjoying the forgiveness, and the, the forgiveness of sins and the fellowship of God. A thousand percent it is. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying neglect any of that or downplay that. Absolutely, it's about the forgiveness of your sins and the fellowship with your creator. But... It serves as a good reminder that we ought to recognize and engage with the spiritual battle that's actually happening with a real enemy. See, we do indeed have a real enemy. An enemy that the Bible says seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. An enemy that the Bible says walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour. Just looking for the next person to take out. And before I move on in that, I have to say this, and this is where it kind of ties back into being forgiven from point number one. We have to understand that the Bible points us to the fact that forgiveness of past sins ought to relinquish us from sin's present power in our lives. See, what I mean by that is this is the active relationship between two big Bible words, our justification being made right before God and our sanctification, which is being set apart, being made holy, being more like Christ. What I mean by this is that just because, okay, let me, let me say it this way. Just because you're saved doesn't mean you won't sin anymore. It doesn't mean Satan's just gonna leave you alone. It, and by the way, salvation also is not just a ticket out of hell in order for you to continue to live your life how you want because, hey, there's forgiveness in Christ. Paul tells us in Romans that when we live by the Spirit, when we are saved, when we are in Christ, we are to put to death. That's an active term. We are to put to death the things of our flesh. He also tells us that just, he says, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. But just because that's true, this is not an excuse to just keep on sinning because the more I sin, the more grace I get. You see that not only are you delivered from your past sin, it's washed by the blood of the lamb, but Paul is speaking in, in present terms here of putting to death the things of the flesh constantly. Living in victory requires a daily dying and denial of our flesh. Walking in the spirit. But in both statements to these individuals, this, this, these young men, there is a claim from John it's there, I didn't make this up, that they, this group has conquered, another way of saying that is overcome or mastered the evil one. That's some pretty profound language there. One Bible scholar put it this way, he says their conflict has become a conquest. 
I love the emphatic way that John presents this truth. He's, he's emphasizing a reality into which every Christian has entered. If you are in Christ, whatever stage of spiritual development you were in, by the way, that when you are in Christ, you have victory over Satan, over sin, and over death. In Christ. And did you happen to catch the secret of this new reality of victory? He says, you are strong. That sounds like he's talking about them. Yes, you are strong, he says in verse 14, and your strength does not come from within yourselves, but it's due to the fact that God's word remains in you. See, Christians like these young men and women, uh, they've understood the assignment. They get it. They understand the importance of the question and answer posed in Psalm 119 uh, verses 9 through 11 where the Bible says, how can a young man keep his way pure? Then he answers, by keeping your word. I have sought you with my, with my whole heart. Don't let me wander from your commands. I have treasured your word in my heart so that I may not sin against you. I mean, up until this point in this letter, God, uh, we've learned that God is light. We're called to walk in that light. And by this, we will know it, we walk in the light if we obey his commands and if we love others. No doubt this would be difficult for a church facing false teachings, uh, uh, Christians uh, d- denying the faith, leaving the congregation. See, how can we... How can we love the people that we disagree with? Let alone maybe the ones causing division amongst us. What about the ones who are seemingly and actively battling against us in the flesh? See, you have to ask yourself this question. What does the Bible, who does the Bible say our actual enemy is? Paul says in Ephesians 6, Verses 11 through 13, he says, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. And then he says something really interesting in verse 12. He says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. That's our struggle is not between each other. But against the rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers of darkness, against evil spiritual forces in the heavens. For this reason, he says, take up the full armor of God so that you may be able to be able to resist in the evil day and having prepared everything to take your stand. See, I'm here to remind us that our enemy is not flesh and blood. No matter how much people may oppose you, cause division among you or hate you, they are not your enemy. This is why Jesus was able to say, yes, love those who love you. But he also said, where's the reward in that? He says, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. It is possible to do that. Why? Because our struggle is not against them. But what does that love actually look like? I would say this. Love your enemies enough to oppose them. In love, speaking the truth in love. I mean, don't hear me say, say that you have to abandon all uh, convictions. I, I would say you don't have to compromise your convictions in order to be compassionate towards others. If anything, I think that's the opposite of compassion, forsaking what you know to be true to pander to someone who opposes you. That's not loving that person. But you need to ask yourself when engaging with those who you disagree with, do you speak in opposition with the intent to win an argument or to save a soul or to win a brother and sister back? Because at the end of the day, what or who brings the true victory? John says, when the word of God remains 
in us. It's the spirit of God who fills us by faith in the son of God, which brings about the full and final victory. So as I conclude here, I just wanna say this. Perhaps you've come to church today. Maybe you're a bit downcast. Maybe you've heard the previous sermon like me and you're still harping on this reality of Matthew chapter seven or something, something's troubled your soul either this week or maybe you're harping on something from the past. You're, you're carrying a burden this morning. Maybe you're in a season of questioning your faith. Do I really belong here? They don't know, they don't know what I've done. I don't feel worthy to be here. Perhaps darkness of doubt is still clouding your soul. Well, it, it was my goal this morning to kind of say, hey, let's huddle up. Let's huddle up and let me remind you for a minute. Let me just bring you some words of comfort and encouragement and confidence, not in yourself, not in your circumstances, not in your family, not in those of, in your life who do have it all together, but in the gospel. So whether you're a little child, a young man, or a father, wherever you are in the spiritual maturity spectrum, you are a child of God. Your sins have been forgiven and you can know the Father. You've been given the strength to face and overcome the evil one. And so I have, I have three things in 60 seconds. If you're here and you don't know Christ, I'm here to tell you that you can receive the full forgiveness of your sins by putting your faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Be freed from that sin that weighs you down. But if you're a believer, walk in that freedom. Stop reaching for that weighted vest every time you screw up. Maybe you're carrying burdens this morning that you need to come down to the altar during the last couple of worship songs and give, give your sin burden over to God. I don't know. If you're here and you don't know Christ, I'm here to tell you, you can know the Father. You can know the one who is from the beginning. You can know the one who created this universe. And if you're here and you are in Christ, remember that relationship that you have that Galatians 4 reminds us of, that we have received adoptions as sons and daughters of God. And thirdly, just to recognize that as the battle rages on in this life, the war has already been won. I'm always reminded of this Tony Evans quote. He says, when the devil reminds you of your past, you remind him, you remind him of his future. See, we have victory in Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Father God, thank you so much for this, for this day. Thank you for these people that you've brought to sit under your word, to be encouraged by John, to be encouraged by me, hopefully to be encouraged ultimately by you and the truth of your word. God, you're so good and we need this reminder constantly. As we face opposition in our lives, we face the, the tendency to wanna to shoulder the, the burden of our sin once again, even though we claim to be forgiven in Christ, Lord, whatever it is, maybe we've forsaken the reality that we can know and do know the creator of all things. Help us to just refocus. Help this morning to be a renewed focus for every single believer in this room. And God, I wanna pray for anybody here that may not know you. God, if they're teetering on, I may wanna put my faith in Christ or I'm not really sure what to do with this whole Jesus thing, I pray that they would be bold enough to ask questions to those in their life who do know you. But Father, above all else, we just want your name to be glorified in this place because you're so good to us. You have offered forgiveness of sins through the, 
through the sacrifice of your son. You do seek to have a relationship with us and you have given us victory over Satan, over sin and over death in your son's name. So Father, we love you and we give the rest of this time to you in Jesus' name, amen.